you for the celebration of new life that is represented in baptism. And uh, we thank you for every single individual heart that is here this morning. Um, Lord, we know that each one of us is made in your image, and um, we're so grateful for that. Uh, And yet we also know, Father, that we live in a broken and fallen world that constantly is uh, attacking that the truth that we are made in your image. Um, it's, we're, we're constantly attacked um, with lies that, that try to put our identity in things that are of no value. And, um, and so we pray as we turn to your word this morning, we would be encouraged by it. We would be, we'd be uh, challenged by it um, and uh, that you would be glorified through it. And this we pray in our precious Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, First Timothy, we will just begin by, by reading our text. Um, our text is this. For, oh, I've put Second Timothy, that's my typo. First Timothy 6, 11, and 12, and it says this. But as for you, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We have been in the book of Timothy for 20 weeks. It's not a book that is oftentimes preached through because it's called a pastoral epistle. This is a book that you study when you go to seminary to become a pastor because it's written from the senior pastor of the church at that time, the Apostle Paul, to a young pastor, up-and-coming pastor in the church of Ephesus, a young man named Timothy. Timothy, like happens with all things in life, maybe they get a good start, but after it gets a good start, things happen within the life of the church, and, and things begin to go downhill, and there were some things at, the, at the, the church in Ephesus that were causing some real problems. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy to, to encourage him, to challenge him, as well as to encourage and challenge the church. And so when we come to the book of 1 Timothy, um, yeah, it could be writ- something that's written to a pastor, but we, we pretty much know that if, if it's instructions is written to the leader of a church, that that instruction is going to be going through the leader to the people. And so the lessons in which Timothy is needing to be taught and to be instructed on are, are, are in many cases the same lessons that would apply to us as well uh, in, in the body of Christ. And so that's what we're looking at here. Notice this strong transitionary term that he uses. The first word in our sentence there is but. But as for you. Paul, Paul begins this verse, but as for you. And you got to remember this letter, it's written to Timothy, but it's also going to be read aloud in the church in Ephesus. They didn't have TV. They didn't have cell phones. Um, one of the hottest commodities, the most valuable commodities, was um, parchment paper that was being written on, especially if something's written a letter from someone like Paul, who was the most influential person in the church at that time. This letter is sent to Timothy, and it's going to be read aloud. It's going to be read aloud in the body of believers there in Ephesus. Um, certainly, it may have been read by Timothy, and probably was, but it could have been read by one of the other elders of the church. And, and he starts off and he says, but, but as for you. And then he moves on to the title, Man of God. And this is, this is intentional here because if you weren't here last week, you, you missed out on the verses 3 through, through, um, through 10, which dealt with false teachers. 
And so these false teachers, they were injecting poison into the jugular veins of the church of Ephesus. They have crept in sneakily. They got established within the body of believers. And what did they do? They started to spew subtle lies. What were some of the the characteristics of these teachers? We see it in verses three through five. It says, they were puffed up with conceit. They understood nothing. It said, he had an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So the title here, the title that he uses, the title man of God, it was an intentional intentional term that Paul used, both to affirm, to challenge, and to let Timothy know the, the words in which he was about to speak to him through this letter, they're really, they're four imperatives, four essentials. These four essentials were vital to the leadership, and so Timothy would have been paying attention. Just the fact that Paul would have called Timothy a man of God would have been a, a great honor. That term, man of God, was used many, many times in the Old Testament, and it was used of men like Moses and, and Abraham. And so for Paul to call this young pastor man of God would have let Timothy know that, boy, whatever's coming in just a moment, whatever I'm going to read is heavy instruction, valuable and important instruction. And so he goes in, and this is what we see. We see um, that the title you see is Four Leadership Essentials. And and the first essential component that we, we see Paul tell Timothy is to flee ungodly pursuits. To flee ungodly pursuits. Now, what are the ungodly pursuits that Paul is talking about? Because he says, but you, a man of God, flee these things. What are the these things that he's talking about? Well, we have, again, context, context, context. We, we can look and see what he's saying. Flee the false teaching. That these false teachers would come in and they were marginalizing Jesus. They were pushing Jesus to the outside and not keeping him at the, the center. So flee any teaching that, that says that Christ isn't enough. Flee any teaching that says that you have to do things in order to earn your salvation. Flee those, those teachings. He'd also, he's talking about these things when he says flee petty controversies. Flee petty controversies. Now, this is one of those things that rips churches apart. People get in their idea, they get some small, um, obscure doctrine, some small, obscure verse, or some small, controversial verse in their Bibles, and then they begin to major on that minor issue that, that really has a lot of interpretive liberty, and they start to push this agenda, and it divides the church. And really what it does is it gets people's eyes off of the work of Jesus, And so Paul says, flee from petty controversy, flee from quarrels about words, flee from divisive talk, flee from religious delusions that imagine that godliness is a means to get rich, which is another major component of these teachers. Flee the desire to be wealthy or to use the gospel ministry uh, and the church to get rich. So that's what he's talking about when he talks about godless godless pursuits that these false teachers were were teaching. But other areas of scripture we know too. Paul used the same word. The word is fugo, flee. He used that word many times talking about sexual sin, to flee from sexual sin. He used the word fugo many times to talk about fleeing from idols, flee from the idols of that culture. He talked about fleeing from youthful youthful lusts as well. I I believe, you know, this is is my own personal belief. Um, So, 
take it for what it is, but I believe if Paul was writing directly in our context today, I believe he would say well, we need to flee from the addiction that we have as a culture to technology. We need to flee from the constant digital stimulation that, that is captivating our time and flee from those things because oftentimes we, we, we are drawn towards those things and many people today, they can't sit still, they can't sit, they can't sit quiet and so they go to a device in which they're addicted to and it, it causes a great deal of, of um, disillusionment in their, in their life. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But basically, learning to flee any temptation, learn to flee any temptation that presents itself into a believer's life is an imperative discipline, an imperative discipline to anyone that is going to be a follower of Jesus. Certainly, it's imperative for those that would be leading other people but it also is imperative because we, we, we all, in some senses, we know the context. We know Paul's talking to Timothy, a pastor of the church. But many of you, you know, you're, you're leaders in your home. You are leaders in your marriage. You are leaders uh, as parents. You're leaders in the workplace. And you're leaders of your own self and your own time. And so learning to flee and turn your back upon evil um, and run fast in another direction is an imperative discipline in which is being directed here by Paul to Timothy and ultimately to the church. But what's interesting here is he doesn't just say just flee anywhere. Don't just flee in any direction. Um, he, he, number two, he says, flee these things, pursue godly virtue. Pursue godly virtue. If you're taking notes next to godly virtue, I'd just like you to put a slash and put balance put balance. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we get further into this verse. The, 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 the Christian life does not just consist of fleeing the bad um, and moving elsewhere. It actually means pursuing virtue, going in a Godward, godly direction. I don't know if you know people like this, but they, they get so militant about fleeing evil that they begin to see everybody and everything else as evil. And so they avoid, they avoid any real connection and real virtue with other believers. And I, I was, um, I meet with a group of pastors in, in the Vancouver Camas area a couple times a month to encourage each other and to pray together. And, and there is a group down in Vancouver area and that, you know, we're just podunk little yakled out here. I don't know if they would come out here and do this to us, but there, it's a group that goes out in front of churches, um, churches that preach the gospel, churches that seek to take the gospel to the community, and they'll hold signs, and their signs are, are they're spewing hatred, and they're, they're taking the, the godly things and making them controversial, taking small doctrines, they're, they're we talked about hyper-Calvinism, that's what this is, it's, it's this sense that God hates everybody and everything unless they're the elect. And so he, they hold these signs, God hates, God hates this, God hates that. And um, they get stuck on this idea that everything is evil except their little interpretation of something. And they're not pursuing the virtuous, godly life that, that he lays out here in just a moment for us very clearly. So, so we as God's servants are, are to, to flee, turn our back on evil things, and pursue to pursue hard after spiritual 
things, spiritual virtues. And I was, I was um, organizing my, or reorganizing my bookshelf, and I came across, a, it's not a classic necessarily, but it's called The Celebration of Discipline by a man named Roger, uh, Richard Foster. And uh, he says this, he says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisf- satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people, the, the greatest need today isn't for a greater number of gifted people, but it's for deep people, people that are willing to pursue spiritual virtue. Again, look at our text. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue, pursue virtues. What are these virtues? He lays out here six virtues. And he uses, similarly to last week when he, he paralleled, paralleled verses 9 and 10, used this um, Hebraic literary style. He does the same thing here, and he couples these two words. So you have three sets of two here that he wants his leader to follow. He wants Timothy to follow, and he wants the church to follow. And he says, to, so first off, he says pursue. The first coupling here is to pursue righteousness and godliness. To pursue righteousness and godliness. So to pursue righteousness is to cover um, the horizontal aspects of life. The, the, the conduct of, of a follower of Jesus' life is conduct that is, that is righteous and it takes care of, of the, the things of this life that impact in a gospel kind of way, a Jesus kind of way, relationships with other people. So the righteousness he talks about here is this horizontal dimension. But then he talks about godliness and it goes so from the horizontal to the vertical. So you've got the horizontal aspects, the, the righteous behavior and activity, um, but that, that behavior and activity, that conduct is, is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it's rooted in, and, and that's what it's motivated in. You know, we, we, we live a righteous life with, with godly conduct, not out of guilt or shame to try to earn God's favor or to earn salvation. We do it as an attitude of thanksgiving because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ came and he died in my place. His blood was shed for my sin. And so he's saying here, you balance the, this righteous, godly life, the horizontal and, and the vertical. Those are, those are two things. When you, when you break those two things apart, and that's what religion does. That's what so many people do. They break these two things apart. They either focus completely on the horizontal and it's motivated by good works and the social movements of the day. Or they focus mainly on just being godly and the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that's fine because they're out there and we're in here. That's not what Paul is saying. We, we balance the horizontal and the vertical aspects of life and when we don't do it, it's kind of like trying to drive a car without putting gas in it. It doesn't go anywhere because you need the gas to fuel the engine. It, it's kind of like trying to, to sew without a needle. You can't do it. I don't think, I'm not a sewer, but I'm assuming you can't do it. <laughs> uh, it's like trying to play a video game without a controller. You can have the box, you can have the game, or you can have the download, but if you don't have the controller, it's not going to work. There's these two aspects that we, we take care of the horizontal, and when one is out of balance, um, everything is out of balance, and yet the two things keep each other in balance at the same time. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Righteous and godliness. The second coupling of words you see there, righteousness and godliness, faith and love faith and love. He, Paul, uses this, this coupling of words five times in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. And like we learned last week, if something is repeated, it's important. 
And it's repeated five times, this coupling of these two words. And faith, faith is simple, confident trust. Simple, confident trust that one has in the all-sufficient God who supplies all that we need for and according to the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith has the confident trust that God has the power, the purpose, the plan, the provisions, and the promises in place for his people. And I know that some of you have allowed your faith to wane through the years. You might still show up at church, but your faith has has weakened. I just want to ask the question, do you have an absolute trust, an absolute faith in the, the, the power and the provision, the purposes, the plans of God? My, my son asked me the question. Many of you know we went through a, a, a pretty a year-long trial trying to sell our home. We had four failed sales. And about three weeks ago, my son, um, our, our, our house had closed. And, and uh, my son asked me the question. He goes, Dad, what's God teaching you through this trial this last year? Stinking kids. <laughs> and, uh, and um, I, you know, in some senses, I think I gave him at the time a superficial answer because I was caught off guard. But I've had some time to think about it. And, um, you know, what I learned from that process over the last year is that, you know, there's, there's nothing greater than just having an absolute solid foundation in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater than just trusting in the all-sufficient enoughness of Christ. It's kind of like the Bible talks about something about building your house upon the sand versus building it upon the rock. And uh, it was really brought home because the, the, we're, we're living in a, in, a, in a rental, a temporary house now, and it's a beautiful house. It's an old farmhouse. It's beautiful. Um, but I'm reminded every time we run this spin cycle on our clothes dryer that this house doesn't have a foundation I can be the furthest upper corner as far as possible away from the the dryer. And when it goes into spin cycle, it feels like Armageddon. The house is beginning to shake. (laughs) When we have faith in the finished work of Christ and we put our absolute trust in him and we don't marginalize the work of Christ in our life, we don't turn to religious observances, but we turn to the person of Jesus, then we're walking upon, we're, we're built upon the foundation Um, Our faith is built in a solid place. And where is your faith built? So many people, they can sit in church and they can can think that their own own efforts are what are going to earn them the the place before a, a holy God, but a God that is also a wrathful God. It's only the finished work of Christ, the foundation found in him that brings brings. Um, that security. So where is your faith placed? Is it placed in the finished work of Christ? Paul then couples this. He couples faith. We've got faith with love. Love, a watered-down word today, but the love he's talking about is an agape love. It's a love that is based on choice. It's choosing to love when I maybe feel not like loving it's a love that is chosen. It's a love that's unrestricted. It's a love that's unrestrained. Um, it's a love that we as followers of Jesus are to have for one another as well as for those that are non-believers. Um, a leader is to be one who holds fast in the way of righteousness and who understands Jesus' words when he says, you shall not love the Lord or you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind and your strength and you also shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So we have righteousness, we have godliness, we have faith, we have love. And then there's the third set of words here in the end of chapter 12, steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness and gentleness, this is an encouragement that I really appreciate. This is a challenge to Timothy from Paul and from Timothy, ultimately the church that I appreciate. Steadfastness, first off, let's start there. Steadfastness, you could almost just put and use the word stubborn there. This is a I won't quit attitude. This is I will persevere, I will endure, even when, if we're talking church, when attendance is down, um, even when that person is a huge thorn in my side and they seem to live to make other people's lives difficult, I will endure through this. I will make it through this um, because I'm being steadfast in this situation. Um, it's patient self-control. That's what steadfastness means. To be patiently in, in control and dealing with people and the difficulties that arise around difficult people and difficult circumstances when it comes to ministry. And then there's that, yeah, that, that term gentleness. It's a, it's a matter of being um, dogged non-quittedness, not, not moving anywhere. I'm staying steadfast no matter what to the good and the bad. And it's also, it's also balanced with gentleness. We don't see that any more perfectly described in the person of Christ. Carrie mentioned Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, Jesus coming in on a donkey. And he is certainly, as he's sitting there, gentle. He's having, he's having sweet interactions with the people. And it's the next day he's flipping tables. He's flipping tables. So there's this tender warrior, there's this gentleness coupled with steadfastness. And how important is this? Because some of us in here, we've got the gentleness down, um, but we're ready to, to leave anytime things get tough. And then there's others of us that are stinking stubborn sometimes. I might fit this category. Um, some that, that will, will work hard because I'm committed and I'm going to be here, but my commitment has caused me to grow cold. And I don't really love the people with a genuine love like I'm called to do like a virtuous follower of Jesus, I'm just going to be doggedly committed. And, uh, you know, when, when uh, that youngster comes and throws up their ideas, you know what, they're not going to be here in a year, but I've been here for a lot of years. Or maybe you're a new one, and you're like, I've, I've been through things in other churches, um, so I'm coming in here, I'm coming in here with my set ideas, and this is the way things are going to be, and I'm sticking to it but there's, no, there's an absence of gentleness. It's a balance. You see that? That's what Paul's doing here. He's balancing righteousness and godliness. He, he's, balancing, he's balancing love and faith, and he's balancing dogged determination with soft, gentle, loving spirit. Those are things that need to stay in balance. And when they get out of balance, well, messes take place. And yeah, I know, messes are sometimes good. Messes are the fertilizer. Things don't grow if they're not in fertilizer, right? <laughs> But, but we need to tend this garden and keep the, the virtuous balance that Paul is talking about here to Timothy. Um, so that's, that's a bit here. Let's, let's go on to the third leadership essential, the third imperative that he brings up, and it starts in verse 12. Fight with focus. Fight with focus. Simply put, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Timothy, at one point, he's saying, yeah, you flee one thing and you, you pursue 
the next thing, but also you are to fight the good fight of faith. Every one of these sentences is so pregnant with truth. We could spend days on just one of these um, sentences. But, but notice, he isn't saying just fight any fight. He's not saying just go fight to fight for fight's sake. He's to fight for the faith. Fight for the faith which, which some have wandered away from. Fight for the faith, meaning that Timothy is to fight for the essentials. He's to fight for what's most important. He's to fight against what these false teachers have come in to do, which is to say Christ isn't enough. He's to fight against what these teachers have done, which is raise up disunity. He's to fight against any quarrelsome issues that might arise within, within the church. The language he's using here is an intense military slash um, athletic agonizing kind of language. That, that's, what, that's what he's talking about here. When he uses, it's, it's also like what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. I believe it's 9 where he says, I, I, I go about a boxing match and I don't just beat the air. I, I punch with focus. I punch to knock out. I punch with discernment. Um, I don't run with no, no end point, just aimlessly. I run with, with, with purpose. And that's what he's talking about here. I have this point. Um, for my, my personal devotions each morning this past month, I'm reading through 2 Timothy, just trying to get my heart ready to go through preaching that here in the coming season. And at the end of that letter, Paul, Paul shows himself as an example of one who, who means to fight the good fight of faith when he says this. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What, a, what an awesome aim, right? For every one of us. I mean, this is what, this is what we want as, as a church. We want to be godly women, men and women who finish strong, who finish the race. So many don't. So many don't. And one of the reasons they don't is because we, many spend their times not fighting the good fight of the faith, but fighting a bad fight. They pick the wrong things to fight for. They battle for the wrong things. This happens in marriage all of the time. It happens in parenting all of the time. Um, and it happens in the church. They fight the bad fight. What's the bad fight? Well, we already looked at it. We've looked at the context here many times. We, we fight against the quarrels. We fight against the controversies. We, we fight against the, the marginalization of Christ. We, we fight against gossip. And this is something that's important for us as our elders, as we meet real regularly, we pray for all of you. This is the one thing that we guard against is, is these types of off-center quarrels that may come up. And we know that as, as God grows his church here, that there's going to be opportunities for those to come in to bring this type of, this type of controversy and quarreling and gossip. But we fight the good fight. And what's that fight? We fight the fight of faith. Everybody today, it seems like everybody today is, has faith, right? Got to have faith. Well, that's an old song, but you got to have faith. Uh, but everybody says, yeah, I have faith. But, but the key thing here is what is the faith in? Is there faith in themselves? Is there faith in someone else? Or is there faith in Jesus Christ? Is there faith in a church? Or is there faith in Jesus Christ? Our call is, and we are saved by, by grace through faith in Christ Jesus that's what our faith is rooted in. It's faith in Christ. And then the fourth leadership essential that Paul points out to Timothy here is this. He says, hold on to eternity. Hold on to eternity. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
Um, Paul is telling Timothy, grab hold. Um, the word that gets used, um, it's, it's not as popular of a word as it once was, but it's the word mission. Grab hold of your purpose because your purpose is rooted in eternal things. Grab hold of this. Take hold. It means to actually take hold with absolute violence is what he's talking about. You take hold of this strongly. Water ski camp, when I was in early high school days, I was determined I was going to launch off of the dock on my skis and land in the water, probably to oppress a girl who's sitting in this auditorium. Um, And the only thing that I remember from that is when I told the driver to hit it, I was flat on my stomach in the water, my skis were still in the dock, and I held on, I held fast to that rope um, until my my shorts did no longer hold onto my hips. So um, then I let go. Um, but it was, a, it was a violent holding on to. Um, my, my, my son and I, we, 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 um, we took a tree down and we had a massive, massive pile of, of brush um, that we were going we to burn. We were going to go burn it. It was just me and him down there. He was probably around eight. And he says, Dad, can we use gas? I'm like, that's a great idea. It's <laughs> a great idea. And so we looked to make sure mom wasn't watching and we went and got a whole gallon of, a whole bunch of gas, and we put it all over that fire. And Liam says, Dad, can I light it? That's a great idea. This is like a, a, a coming of age moment for my son and I, right? This is like your, your passageway into manhood. I'm like, I'm so proud of you. And he goes up, lights the match, throws it onto the fire. Boom! absolutely explodes and I see my son engulfed and so I I violently grab and tackle him throw him on the ground and we're immediately you know the stop drop and roll rolling under rolling over one one another and when I finally looked at his face he was terrified and and um, I said, are you okay? And he's like, what are you doing? He didn't even think of the fact that his eyebrows are gone, his hair is gone. <laughs> he, he, was, he was scared that I grabbed him and drove him into the ground with, with, with this absolute, steadfast, hard grip. But this is the type, I mean, this is the type of, of violent grabbing onto something that Paul is talking about to Timothy. Hold on to eternity. Hold on. There's too many people that let go of the grip of grace in Christ Jesus. There's too many people that walk away from their, their, their love of Jesus. That they let their faith wane. Don't let that be you, Timothy. Be able to say at the end of your days that, that you held fast to the faith. You held fast to eternity because there's far too much on the stake, not just for you, but for other people who need to know the love of Jesus that's going to come through you. And this is you and me here in Yakult. This is us. This is us taking the love that we've received from the Savior and sharing it with the world. That is, that is who we are. That is what we are to do. But we cannot do that if we don't hold fast to the truth. We don't hold fast to the, the call in which we, we have. Annie Dillard was a writer, and she tells in a story of a man who, after shooting an eagle from the sky, uh, went down and captured the eagle. When she found it, she found a weasel 
that um, a weasel that was fixed by its jaws to the throat of the bird. And evidently, when the, we, um, when the eagle pounced on that weasel, he jumped up and bit onto that, that eagle. And, and he bit onto it with such steadfast, holdfast determination. Uh, he refused to let go, and he really he became an airborne skull. Then um, she said this, she said, I would think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and to not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you, to seize it and to let it seize you up high, even until your eyes burn out and drop and it lets your musky flesh fall off like shreds and let your bones dry up and turn white. This is the type of determination that Paul is talking about to Timothy. Hold fast to the faith. This is why the assembly of believers is so important. It's one of the key components. It's why our growth groups are so important. It's why we we sell out for kids and, and the youth of this town because we want to instill in them such a love for Jesus and one another that there's a hold fastness to their faith that when, the, when, when we go through the ups and downs of life at whatever stage, we remember. We remember that our foundation is solid upon the work of Christ and the person of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. And we remember that we live in eternity. And all of the present sufferings of this world that we can read about in Romans chapter 8, 7, and 8, all of those things pale in, compar- in comparison to the riches that come from knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. All of it compares and fails short, falls short of that beautiful truth. And so we see that here. We see Paul telling Tim, Tim, there's these four essentials to your your leadership. Flee the evil things. Pursue the virtuous things. Fight, not the bad, but fight the good fight. And hold on. Hold on to eternity. Hold on to this. Too much is at stake. And it's too much fun. You, You let go and you miss out. You don't persevere to the end and you miss out on the good times. Don't let the bad times drag you down. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. I don't want us to forget that, you know, we talk about being a church and our mission as a church is to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, those that are near to us but far from Christ. This is your opportunity as a church to invite um, neighbors and friends, perfectly invite neighbors and friends to come hear the gospel next week for Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Um, and um, yeah. Let's, let's stand as we, we close in prayer and the singing of our final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, the hope that we have in you. And we thank you for the guidance that we have, Lord. I do not know, we would not be here without the beauty of your word, um, without the reminder. Father, this is a passage that I think I've read since I was a little boy. And as you brought me through it this week, it's like I read it for the first time and I learned things. And I thank you for the beauty of the living word of God. May we be people of, of your book, people that walk in your spirit, that are, that are characterized by the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, that we would be those kind of people. We would be those kind of people because we're fueled by the beauty of the cross. We're fueled by the beauty of the love of our Father that has been shown to us through our Son, Jesus. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen.